What's that? Has someone raised the Trinity radio bat signal? And we were thinking about doing it. We were getting more and more requests to do it. And then we watched Braxton's review, Braxton Hunter's review. Who? On <laughs> Braxton! We know who Braxton is. Don't pretend you don't know who Braxton is. such an <laughs> Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Braxton Hunter, and this is Trinity Radio. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, a response video to the Matt... Dillahunty and David Wood debate that happened last week or a couple weeks ago, whatever. And I made a response video to this and Shannon Q and Paul Ogia, both atheist YouTubers, made responses as made a response as well uh, together on one live stream, one mega live stream that is two hours long. And so uh, we're not going to be able to go through everything. But I did think that they made some points that were interesting that we should talk about and maybe unpack and clarify a little bit of what I think a good Christian position or at least theistic position on this should be and maybe drive home some of the points I made in my own response video in light of some of their criticisms. I've had interactions with both uh, of these individuals before. I think they're both, um, they've both been really cool with me. Uh, Shannon, I've been on Shannon's show. And so I think that this, uh, this can be a, a good, sensible um, response to what I think that they said. So uh, let's go ahead and jump in. And we're going to begin by listening to a discussion about what the topic of the debate is supposed to be. Now, the topic of the debate has been a little hard to pin down. Uh, I have on the actual video for this, the, oh, where is it? Let's see. On the actual debate video, it says, what best explains ethics, God or secular humanism? Now, David Wood did uh, go into uh, a little bit of an understanding or explanation of why Christians believe that or theists believe that um, uh, you have objective morality and how that objective morality makes best sense as God as the uh, foundation for that objective morality, whereas atheism doesn't really seem to, to you know, have that have a way for uh, objective morality in the ultimate sense. Now, some of you will recall that Dill Hunty's chess analogy says that, okay, look, uh, we subjectively created the rules of chess, but then if we all agree about the rules of chess, we can talk about objectively better or worse moves that you can make to get to that goal of winning the game of chess. And so that's kind of the analogy there. And so um, what so Dillahunty goes about talking about that. Now, Paul Ogia thinks that the debate topic... <laughs> so if it's true that David Wood has in his mind uh, what he thinks is going on in the debate, which is what makes for the best foundation for moral, moral values and duties, and Dillahunty is thinking uh, you know, that it's about what's the best or why secular humanism, humanism is great or what's the best system... Uh, and I'm saying that it's a comparison of those two systems. Let's see what Paul Ogia thinks is the topic of the debate. So Matt was saying, hey, we observe this variety of ethics on our planet. Yes. What explains the observations that we have? This is a very scientific thing. It would be like any, any scientific thing where you make an observation, you try and explain it. David wasn't attempting to do that at all. David wasn't making observations. He was saying, if morality is a real thing, what is it grounded in? So you can under So it sounds like what Paul Ogia, having listened to all of this video, sounds like what Paul Ogia is understanding the topic of the debate to be. And I thought he did a really clever thing. He played uh, a clip of David explaining what he thought the debate was about, what uh, Dillahunty was saying he thought the debate was about, what uh, the moderator thinks the debate is about, what the debate, debate is titled. I, th I thought that was really clever. I don't think it does anything to to circumvent the point that I made in my own response video, and I'll explain why in just a few moments. But I thought that was really clever. But so it sounds like what Paul Ogia understands that Matt understands the topic of the debate to be is, hey, it's got nothing to do with objective morality and all those sorts of things, which, of course, Matt did say. But Paul Ogia seems to think that what Matt understood the debate topic to be, to be something like... Um, looking at how human beings function and how they view what they call morality, whatever you want to say about that, or what they call ethics, because, you know, we could nuance the definitions there, uh, what they call ethics and how they function, what best explains why they function that way. 
and why we come to the to the general ideas we do, and then how can we improve on those? And then that's the role of secular humanism, perhaps. And that secular human. And so the debate would be something like, um, looking at this, does theism provide a good explanation for why people function the way they do as we observe it in the real world, or does secular humanism hit closer to an explanation of why people function the way they do and what they value and all those kind of things? So that's what he th so he makes it clear, and I'll just play another clip here where he makes it clear this is not about a comparison in his mind. In Paul's mind, Dillahunty's mind is not on what is a better system of ethics, theism or secular humanism, or Christianity and secular humanism. It's about looking at the world, which one seems to seems to explain why people value what they do. Very nuanced thing, but here's another example of him saying that. This is, again, um, so Matt is engaging in his debate, and the debate is not uh, which system is the best system. Right. The debate is which, best, which system best explains the type of morality we observe in the world. Okay, so that's what Apologia understands Dillahunty to understand about the nature of this debate is it's not, this is Paulogia here. Um, basically this is again, so Matt is engaging in his debate and the debate is not which system is the best system, right? The debate is which best, which system best explains the type of morality we observe in the world. All right. Is that really what Dillahunty now that perhaps that is what Dillahunty understood the debate to be about, but you, you would have to forgive anyone not thinking so based on what Matt actually says. So let me give you a clip of Matt making a statement that doesn't at all seem to indicate that. It seems, listen to this clip and tell me whether you think this sounds like what Matt's actually saying is, this understands about this debate is that this is com a comparison of two different systems to see which one is best, which, which system is better, which is exactly what Paulogia says it's not about. It says not which system is the best system, the debate is which best, which system best explains the type of morality we observe. All right, listen to this clip and see what you think. It is simply impossible for a non-system to be a better system than a system, a foundation. See, what he's saying there is, look, theism isn't a system. Theism is a position about God's existence, right? It's not a system. It's, it's a proposed entity, right? God, right? And he's saying on secular humanism, we've got a system over here. So your system, your theism system can't, is a non-system and can't be a better system than the system that we've got over here with secular humanism. Now, that's a whole other point that I covered in my response video before. And nevertheless, the fact is, what is he doing there? He's revealing, it would seem, that he understands this debate to be about which of these two systems is better. Now, what he said was he preferred that it had been Christianity versus uh, secular humanism. Why? Because then you could do more of a, a, a robust comparison of two more robust systems, Christianity or secular humanism. But it doesn't, that explanation doesn't seem to make sense on the question, which one best explains what we see, it's which system is better. And the, the non-system can't be a better system than the secular humanism system, which he thinks is a system in a way that theism is not a system. So uh, it really does seem, and this becomes a big theme throughout uh, Paul Logia and Shannon Q's response here. It really seems like, or he really does drive home this idea that that was the point of the debate. Matt understood that to be the point of the debate. Now, they mentioned somewhere in here that they actually messaged with Matt while they were watching this. Uh, so maybe maybe Matt shared with them that, hey, um, yeah, that is what I understood the point of the debate to be. Um, but if that's true, then it sure sounds like he misspoke at several relevant moments in the debate where it seems like he's admitting that this is a comparison of two different systems to figure out which one is better. So that loops us back to the criticism I made in my response video, which was, hey, look, um, better makes sense within Matt's system. Within Matt's system, as he defines it, there is no better or best or worse. These are all value statements that, that if they don't have any objective ontology, then, then what they mean, what gives them meaning, why they're meaningful is within my system of secular humanism, where we have this subjectively decided upon goal and framework built toward well-being, now we can talk about what's better or worse in terms of getting to well-being, what's good and bad with respect to well-being. 
but at, but when you but as I said before, you've got uh, theist a theist any theistic system here, or and let's say Christianity specifically here versus uh, secular humanism here, and any version of secular humanism here. Uh, which one? Which one is better? Well, better only has meaning inside the secular humanist system. But once you come out of the system and then to look at these two systems, you can't have a better or a worse because those because to say that you could implies some objective uh, standard, some objective uh, foundation or it's to say that they're objective. And, and Matt clearly doesn't think so. So with, and this is totally consistent with Matt's perspective within secular humanism. You can talk about better or worse stepping out of it to do this meta ethic. You can't, you're just saying, I like this one more and all kinds of people like all kinds of things more. And I went into all that in my response video, but I just think that several things that Matt says in his discussion don't fly with that perception of what this debate is about. Now, having said that, let's just grant it. Let's just grant that 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 is what it's about is uh, is which one best explains what we see in the world. A Christ, give Matt what he wants, a Christian system of ethics or a secular humanist uh, description of ethics. Which one best explains the data that we see? And this, again, albeit through a different doorway, gets us back to what David, again, whether you think he understood rightly or wrongly the, the point of the debate, this gets us back to what he had to do. However you want to dice this, what he still had to do is what he did, which is to discuss whether or not morality is objective, because what we're going to say about that question of which one conform. So let, let's say that Matt got everything he wanted and Paulogia and Shana Q are right about how this is supposed to be framed up, which uh, system best explains what we see in the world as it relates to ethics, how people function, what's going on socioculturally and all those sorts of things, an anthropological study of ethics. If you want to do that, guess what you still loop back to? You still loop back to this central debate about whether or not morality is objective. And, th and, and then from there, whether God exists, because what you're going to say, what we're going to see is the Christians are going to say, look, look, the, the fact of the matter is what we see on the ground, boots on the ground with ethics, indicates that object that there is this objective morality. And we'll get to why in just a little while. But it gets to objective morality and then, of course, to God. And then we've got this meta-ethical system that we have to then consider. And that's what it's going to boil down to. So, so I don't think that's what Dylan Hunting understood this debate to be, is just which system best explains what we see going on among humans which describes it best. I think it's the, I think he understood the more provocative thing of look, which system is better, but let's say I'm wrong. Let's say you messaged Dill Hunty. He agreed with you and uh, all of that was honest and everything. And the fact of the matter is he did understand it that way. Guess what? Boil that one down. What does it get down to? Whether or not what we see boots on the ground with ethics among humans indicates objective morality, which then indicates a God, which then indicates um, objective morality with, uh, with God, ultimately, which then, of course, would, would indicate a very different outcome in terms of which system is better anyway. So however you want to boil this down, it gets back to that same feature, I think. So I wanted to make that point because that was a big part of, their, um, of what they had to say. So now let's get to something that Shannon says here. Let's listen to what Shannon has to say. This is a different point, um, and this has to do with, I think, why Christians think about this the way they do. Right. So I don't actually believe that there are moral truths. And I think that one of the things that David's appealing to, and a lot of these apologists appeal to, is that if there aren't moral truths, then that might be scary for people. And they appeal to that fear. Like if we don't have an authority that is determining for us what is right and what is wrong and has mandated that then it's up to us and it being up to us could be terrifying so i think that that's kind of what he's yeah. referencing i think he appeals to that under underlying fear that would exist in people inherently unless would you disagree with that no no i, I just think it's incredibly ironic because later his objection to matt will be that um Morality can't just be what makes us happy or what we like. Right. And yet. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. 
And this is going to come up a couple of times in this uh, in this response in this response video to what they're saying is that it is true. So the moral argument, let's just back out of this discussion for a minute and look at what the moral argument says. The moral argument for God's existence, there are many, but the, typically the one that's most well known is take Craig's moral argument, which says if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Premise two, objective moral values and duties do exist, therefore God exists. Now, when it comes to the defense of these premises, what Shana might be saying is something like, if she, and I realize she's talking about these ethical systems, but let's apply it to the moral argument, because the moral argument informs how Christian apologists are thinking about this issue. Um, it would be something like, well, yeah, but you only think that objective moral values and duties do exist because it would be so terrifying if they didn't, right? Because in defense of premise two of that argument, Craig, myself, probably David Wood and almost every other apologist will say something like what you're saying, if this is the case, is that um, it's not necessarily it's not objectively wrong to, you know, to say that torturing children just for the fun of it. You can't say that's objectively wrong. Right. Uh, it would just become a matter of opinion. It would become subjective. Right. That's what that's. And, and so that's where we play that. And most people, um, and including many atheists, will say, yeah, that can't be subjective. That has to be. It has to be that it's objectively wrong that to torture children just for the fun of it. That has to be objectively wrong. What Hitler did, that's why Hitler always comes up, must have been objectively wrong. We can't just say that's a matter of opinion. They can't just say that's subjective. Um, now, what Shannon would would say, and and I, on the surface, this sounds, I think, like a good criticism. Well, maybe it is, and it it just sounds terrible to you. It sounds terrifying, and I get that it sounds terrifying and horrific, but that may be the way it is, and you guys are just appealing to fear uh, to try and get this point through. Now, I understand all that, and yes. If that's the case, I do see that as horrific. I do see that as terrifying, and I think most of you listening do too. But that's not really the argument. Is the argument emotionally potent? Yes, but that's not the same as it being an appeal to emotion. For instance, I think the best argument that atheists have against theism is the is an evidential argument from evil. Why is why would God, a loving God, allow pain and suffering like we see it in the world today? Now, is that an emotionally potent argument? Yes, it is. We always point, you know, atheists always point to what about the children in cancer awards? What about all these kind of things? It is emotionally potent, but I don't criticize it as an appeal to emotion. Why not? Because even though there is emotion present, there is something else more intellectually driven going on under the hood, namely uh, the intellectual question of if this God is supposed to be omnipotent and omnibenevolent, then why do we see these things that don't sound very loving happen that he could stop, right? That is an intellectually fair question, even if it is an emotionally potent one. So when we come to the moral question, yes, it is true that it would be terrifying if it were the case that uh, these moral truths were not objective, but that's a different question from the intellectual question of whether they are or not. Are they related? Yes, they're related in the following way. And this is key to this entire thing. So when, when it comes to defense of premise two of the moral argument, what is always brought out is, look, or what should be always brought out is, look, we have these intuitions about this whole matter. We have these intuitions that it is wrong to torture children just for the fun of it. We, we intuitively recognize that. And we, and we admit, we freely admit. So we go to something like the principle of credulity here. We say, all right, look, if I have, if I recognize in myself an intrinsic uh, knowledge of something that seems impossible to doubt, until you present me with overriding evidence why I should reject it, I am justified in affirming that and, and, and maintaining that. Now, atheists hate that. Many atheists, I won't speak broadly, many atheists hate that. However, they have to rely on that themselves in the following way. I, I've said this uh, recently on an interview. Uh, what would it take? What sort of an argument would I have to present you with to demonstrate to you that you don't exist, right? Uh, maybe I could present you the testimony of several people that, that testify that you don't exist. Maybe I could show you historical information about um, your parents, uh, the people you think are your parents. Uh, I have a philosophical argument for your non-existence. I could do all of that stuff. Well, uh, guess what? None of it is going to be compelling to you. Why not? The reason why not is because a good argument must have premises that are plausible, which means more likely to be true than false. And there is no argument that I could possibly present you to show you that you don't exist 
Uh, all of the arguments I would present you for that would contain premises that are less plausible than your immediate experience that you do exist, your immediate intrinsic knowledge that you do exist. The same thing I think is true with morality. There is no argument you could present, present me with and most people with that is not to show that morality is not objective. All of them will contain premises that are less plausible than our immediate awareness, our intrinsic knowledge that it is objective and that it is objectively wrong to torture children just for the fun of it or what Hitler did or whatever else. Now you might say, yeah, but I don't like that because I don't like intrinsic argumentation like that. Well, okay, then we disagree. And it may be that we disagree and that that's perfectly fine. But that difference of opinion is one of the key features in this debate. And you have to rely on it for your own positions about things. Um, you have to rely on that intrinsic awareness too. And this of intrinsic things to claim knowledge of, this one seems pretty darn safe and, and, uh, and, and gives us a, a, an explanation. So what we're doing here is we're not saying we believe in objective morality and God's existence because we're afraid of what it would mean if it's not true. That's not what we're saying. That is, I mean, it would be terrifying, no doubt. But there's a much better underlying intellectual thing in the midst of that, and that is... No, we think that there is intrinsic, there is an intrinsic awareness in human beings that, and we can look at culturally, uh, anthropologically, it seems like this is a key feature of, of what human beings are and what humans know, that this is objective morality. Now, what best explains that objective morality? And what does that mean for how we live our lives and how we should live? That doesn't mean, that that, that is not an emotional, that is not a fear-based argument. Again, there is emotionally potent material in it, just like there is in the arguments from evil. But that doesn't mean that there's not an intellectual component. And that is very, very important to this, I think. And I think what we're going to see is a similar problem on the next clip. So let's go ahead and play that. Christians seem to hold on to, and, and a lot of believers seem to hold on to, anybody who, who sees God as like the morality giver, the creator of morality, the reason that morality exists. They seem to hold on to the fact that this makes it real. If I can say that God made it, then I can say it's real. I can say it tangibly exists in reality as a component of reality that we must adhere to. Whereas somebody like me would say, well, it's not real in that way. Like as like it doesn't. Sorry, I'm pulling them out of your ears. It's not real in the way that you know it exists in the ether in the universe, and we're just working towards accessing it somehow. It exists as a construct that we generated to determine and describe the best um, systems of how to conduct ourselves. So th this is the problem with this is I, I, I like the fact that I think Paulogia and Shannon Q try to understand exactly what their opponents are saying. And so I, I, I don't think there's any anyone here trying to slip anything in or, or intentionally mix anything up. And I appreciate that. That makes these response videos a whole lot simpler. However, what she has said here is that if we can if we can have God then then that would make it real. If I can say that she says, if I can say that God made it, then I can say it's real. I can see it, say it tangibly exists somewhere in the universe as a reality. In other words, we need to posit God as a reason to believe that morality is real, by which we mean objective. This is actually the inverse of what Christians think about this. In fact, what we think is we understand for the reasons just discussed that morality is objective and is real. And then we look for the best explanation for its objectivity and realness. And that leads us unmistakably to God. So it's actually exactly the opposite of that, though I don't think she was trying to, um, I don't think she was trying to, to confuse it intentionally. Um, and perhaps she has heard Christians say things like that. But the standard uh, way of thinking about this that apologists will give is, no, no, no. We recognize that morality is objective. And then we reason from that to God's existence, which brings us to the next thing on the docket, which I think uh, opens it up more to other theistic arguments. Let's take a listen. I said like, um, so every time <laughs> you're in a discussion like this, God is just automatically the answer to everything because he can do everything. He is everything. He is everywhere. He knows everything. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's a, he is a fill in the blanks answer, whatever. 
answer. So he's always the answer. It's like <clears throat> I created the answer to everything and I called it God. So no matter what argument I'm having with you, I win because whatever you say, the answer is, well, God can God can just do whatever because he's God. So you're your reasoning based on your observations of reality and your attempt to have a conversation with me regarding, you know, what that means, that we can negate all of that because I have the answer to everything. I don't, you, we, we don't need to understand it, but it's called God. Okay. Um, first of all, I want to say that the idea that we don't need to understand it, obviously Christians believe, and even as an atheist, you should understand that, or you should recognize, I think, that if such a concept as God, such a being as God did exist, uh, it would be impossible to understand every aspect of this being that is great enough, maximally great, to create universes, right? So um, obviously there's going to be a limit to understanding we uh, everything there is to be known about God. Nevertheless, um, we have... 2,000 years of church history and thousands more years of people grappling with the nature of God, trying to understand God, debating issues related to God, uh, what God's like, how certain doctrines fit with God, whether determinism is true on a Christian or theistic concept or not, what's the nature of human freedom or sovereignty, um, what's the nature of revelation, what's the nature of first things, last things. We have uh, uh, all of these kinds of things are, are major efforts by Christians who believe and are pretty well settled that there is a God on moving the ball forward in, okay, now that we don't have to have that pedantic discussion about whether God exists anymore, what is this God like? And that's where most Christians are. Um, I, I know that Paul Ogia and Shannon Q understand this aspect, but it always bothers me whenever I play a sermon for my pastor or somebody and the uh, atheist will say, but I didn't hear any arguments for God's existence. Well, yeah, of course not. It's a sermon. The majority of the people sitting in that room believe this, and they're here showing up for this sermon to find out how best to live in light of the truth of Christianity. Now, my pastor does throw out apologetic evidences and things like that at appropriate times, but not everything is meant to be an argument. So for those of us Christians who have already settled this question in our minds, not that we're not still open and all those kind of things, um, we can move forward now and have really intellectual and intelligent and academic discussions on what this God is like, and that has been going on for thousands of years. And if you are one of those people in the comments who say, oh, that's like Hogwarts or whatever, or that's like you're discussing the ideas of a God that you can't possibly know, um, that's fine. An ocean of ink has been spilt on this by some of the most highly intellectual people on planet Earth, and you can brush all of that aside if you want, but please do not brush it aside with such glib certainty about the matter. Not that that's Shannon Q or Apologia necessarily. Um, but yeah, so, so this, this is one thing that needs to be pointed out. It's not that the conversation ends when we get to God. Secondly, uh, this is kind of like the old idea of, you know, we hear this a lot in the atheist community that um, if God is an answer, if God can be an answer for anything, he's an answer for nothing, right? Uh, whatever you don't understand, you can, you, can just, you can just plug God in and he's the answer because he can do everything and he can do anything and all these kinds of things. That is not what these theistic arguments, arguments we present for God's existence are like. Let's think about the most popular ones for just a moment. When it comes to something like uh, the cosmological argument, let's take the Kalam cosmological argument, one of my favorite, if not my favorite, argument for God's existence. What is going on in the Kalam cosmological argument? We're looking at what we do know, that the universe is space, time, and physical matter, and we're reasoning from that to what the cause of space, time, and physical matter must be like. It's not like we're saying we don't know, so therefore God. We're saying the cause of space, time, and physical matter coming into existence can't be spatial, uh, physical, you know, material, or um, uh, or 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 time in time. It has to be timeless. So a spaceless, timeless, non-material cause. It also has to be sufficiently powerful. Um, it also has to be exceedingly wise. Um, you know, you can you we reason up. I mean, you could go with well, it's abstract objects or like that. You know, numbers, the laws of logic. But those don't have causal powers. And what you ultimately land at is whatever serves as the cause of the physical universe. It has to be something that has libertarian freedom because randomness wouldn't you couldn't get you there and you can't even have randomness in a state of timeless nothingness and determinism can't get you there because there was no prior determinism to work on the first cause of the physical universe. So, yeah, it has to have libertarian freedom. And what sort of things have libertarian freedom? Minds do. So you have a spaceless, timeless, non-material, sufficiently powerful mind that serves as the best explanation for the beginning of the universe. We didn't just say God because God can do anything. What we said was here are some things 
things that lead us to a particular type of thing, a particular type of um, entity or cause. And it happens to be one that looks a lot like in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, I can't help that. That's just what it leads to, right? Uh, with the moral argument, it seems to lead us to, we, we have these moral intuitions, these moral impressions. Um, we, we seem to all kind of recognize certain basic fundamental moral truths. And this leads us to a God who has some interest in morality, right? Um, we, we look at the teleological argument. It leads us to a designer. And the fact that these each kind of give you a different piece of this God, as well as demonstrating his existence, is why most classical apologists will give multiple arguments because we don't just say, um, he's just the answer to everything without giving you reasons to believe each of those particular elements. So I just think that's a major problem that I hear thrown out there so often. And, and, it, and often, and she didn't do this today, but this often happens when there's an overreach of what the atheist is trying to say. So with the Kalam cosmological argument, they'll say, so there's a cause, and then therefore this cause happens to be my favorite God, the Christian God or the Muslim God. Um, I don't know how Muslims are doing this these days, but I'll tell you how Christians do it. We give the conceptual analysis that gets us to God, and we don't say it's the Christian God until we provide further uh, reason to believe so with something like a resurrection case. So I think just a lot of times th this is just this kind of be it becomes a bumper sticker. Now Shannon didn't give exactly the bumper sticker, but it was kind of this. Um, and I love you, Shannon, but it was kind of this, hey, if, if he can be an answer to everything, then he can be an answer to anything, and he's an answer for nothing. And it's much more it's much more detailed than that. So I uh, wanted to make that point, and let's move on now and take a look at, um, yeah, let's take a look at this next criticism. Being afraid of the fact that you have to opt into a moral system in order to exist productively in a society being afraid that people are going to say well i opt out isn't an indicator that absolute god-given morals are true it's just an indicator that the fact that it's up to us is scary and serious and should be taken seriously and discussed in a serious fashion and analyzed critically and that these conversations are important. So just okay, so that's not the argument. The argument is not because there are people like David who who might not who if, they, if there is no God, if there's no object, let's just say if there is no objective morality, because if you guys can find some way to ground objective morality, that that'd be great. And then we could have, uh, you know, then we could the comparison would be a lot more difficult, I, I will admit. Um, but the fact that, you know, most of your sensible atheists will say, no, 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 it's, it's like this chess game or it's like subjectively chosen well-being. And then from there, we objectively work towards that. Um, the fact that there are people like David who, if you can't give them objective morality, they're going to do these horrible things is scary. But that's not the argument. The argument is that isn't that we intrinsically know that's not the case. And so because of that. Uh, we've got to figure out what does make best sense of those objective moral values and duties, and it gets you to God. Now, in terms of this debate and the comparison of two systems and seeing which of these two systems works the best, showing that there are people, and this was David's operation, this was his point, showing that there are people outside of that system who don't care about what you think inside your system because that's just the system that you like, um, and people that don't have no interest in pursuing your your chosen goal of, 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 uh, well-being or whatever, um, th that, that shows that when you, that you can't say they're being immoral in any ultimate sense, you can say in our system, we would consider that immoral and we can even put them in prison for it, but you can't say it's it from their perspective, it should be considered immoral. Um, so you back out of the systems and you have no meta ethic out from outside of the systems. You can't say that what they're doing is worse than what you're doing in the system. So if we're comparing systems, you can't say your system is better than what they're doing, uh, whatever system allows for what they're doing. It just doesn't work. And in fact, if you say, yeah, but yeah, but the, most people do care about this. As Dillahunty admitted in the debate, uh, the, 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 the majority of people doesn't, doesn't make it somehow ultimate. Does Because again, the might makes right doesn't work and the majority can be wrong and uh, all those kind of things. So um so yeah, I think, I'm not going to say she misunderstands what we're saying here, but the way I would, I would talk about this, and I think the way David would talk about this, that's not, that's not what we're doing here. We're saying if the guy outside the system doesn't care what you're doing in the system, 
and your system has nothing to say to him. Like Dillahunty said, it has nothing. If you don't agree that well-being, then I don't have nothing to say to you. I have nothing to say to you. If that's where you are, then that system's got a major problem. That cannot be the better system. If the guy outside the system can can do the ball peen hammer thing, and morality's got nothing to say to him, and he can construct his own morality because all morality means anymore is just uh, the way of getting to whatever subjectively chosen goal or game I want to play. So I think all that's pretty important to consider. Now, let's go on to the next thing. Um, yeah, so this comes to the Milgram experiment, this experiment that we've, that we've heard about, and I think she'll explain it, so let's, let's take a listen. Really low. So <laughs> all right. So I have a lot of things to say about the Milgram experiment. I actually didn't catch this the first time I was listening because I was probably talking through it because I'm not sure if everybody's aware, but I talk a lot. So the Milgram experiment, to explain it to you, not it's been a long time since I've read up on it, but it's something that I've read up on quite a bit when I was studying psychology. So here's how the experiment operates based on my memory. I didn't get a chance to look it up because I didn't realize beforehand. But what they did was they had participants in one room and they had somebody doing a task in another. And the participant that was in the room didn't realize that the person that was in the other room operating tasks, like doing tasks, uh, like word matching tasks, and, and I can't I think that was it. There may have been some others. So the tasks aren't important. <clears throat> what was important was they were supposed to give a light shock to the person and they were told that they were studying essentially like conditioning that person to be better at the task. So when they failed at a task, they were to give them a shock and they were to steadily increase the shocks. Now the actor that was in the other room was uh, told that they, they didn't feel anything. They actually weren't giving this person shocks. The sh person was not getting shocks at all. But the person in the other room was supposed to react increasingly distressed and concerned about their well-being. Now, in one group, there were um, experimenters in the room with them telling the people that were giving the shocks, you know, keep going, it's fine, they're fine. And in another room, the people were allowed to just stop on their own. Now, it was found that the people that had the authority figure, this was actually a study on obedience to authority which is why I will get into why I don't understand he would use this argument as a good argument for his system. But it showed that people will kind of kick off um, culpability. They'll, they'll kick the can down the road if they can. And a lot of people will do this. You'll see this in observer bias too and bystander bias. Um, I'm getting off track. But the people that were in the room with uh, a an authority figure who was saying the person's fine, keep going, the person's fine, keep going, demonstrably went further, even to the point where the person in the other room was saying, I have a heart condition, please stop, I'm going to die, and was showing physiological distress. <clears throat> they would keep going. Now, this wasn't an indicator, like David's presenting it, that people are inherently bad, because the people that didn't have authority figures convincing them that it was okay, didn't go as far. They just, you know, they would be like, you know, this hurts them, I'm gonna stop. Like if they had the opportunity to stop, they would stop. What this was an indicator of was that if somebody has an authority figure telling them to do something, they're more liable to follow that imperative because they've been given a directive from somebody they perceive as being in authority and knowing more than them about the situation. What it also indicated was that people, if they can push off accountability, are more likely, I have another drink, thanks, are more likely to uh, push the boundaries of what they would do if they were accountable to just themselves. So if in the, in the scenario where there was an experimenter in the room, essentially the person's justification was, well, if something happens, it's not my fault. They're telling me to do it. They should know they're in charge here. Where in the other room, they were just accountable to themselves. So any repercussions would fall solely on them. How is that supporting his argument? I don't understand. Because his argument is essentially, this was mandated by an authority figure, this being morality. An authority figure gave this to me, thus I should accept it. He's the person pressing the button in this analogy. 
and the atheists are the people in the other room that stopped. Doesn't anybody see that? Okay. So, what's going on here is uh, an interpretation of the experiment. And that's fine. Let me offer an interpretation too, Shannon. So, the, so when people are told by an authority figure where they can fluff off their accountability onto the authority figure, they're more willing to go further, right? That still means that everyone that did that is doing something that is inherently bad, even if they're doing it just because an authority figure told them to, right? I think we would agree because, of course, that was how some Nazis got out of feeling bad about what they had done in the Holocaust, right? They, I was just following orders. I was just following the orders, right? And maybe you're fine granting that. But if the majority of people who had the authority figure still push the button, then the majority of people are still doing something bad, even if there's an authority figure there. Now, from there, the dichotomy that's being presented between if you had the authoritarian figure, you're more likely to do this horrible thing than if there's no one there and you're just left to yourself. Oh, well, then you wouldn't do that because that's crazy, right? Well, okay. Remember, if you take those people that, that, that didn't have the authoritarian figure, what if you gave them the authoritarian figure? Okay, so, so we still have a problem with people, and that's David's point. We still have a problem with people doing a bad thing, having the authority figure there and then being able to say it's her fault or it's his fault doesn't mean what they did wasn't bad, just like it didn't mean that for the Nazis. Okay, now beyond that, let's go a step further. The presumption here is that the people without the authoritarian figure might be something like the atheists, right? That, that, that don't believe in God. He's the authoritarian figure that is standing over you saying, it's okay to do this thing that is so bad, right? Okay. And that the Christians are like these people that have this authoritarian figure. Um, all right. But here's the problem with that presumption. Everyone has authoritarian figures, Literally, everyone has authoritarian figures. No matter how far you try to distance yourself from it, everyone does, whether they are imposed on you or whether you self-impose authoritarian figures on you. Yes, for Christians, God is our highest uh, authoritative figure. However, if you're an atheist who doesn't even like the concept of authoritarian figures, you impose on them on yourself in a certain sense because you might say my favorite atheist philosopher or my favorite atheist scientist or the government or if not the government, the scientific community or whatever. You, you, the, whoever you admire, whoever you listen to and trust, you could always say I'm doing it the way they say because they're smarter than me and I've come to trust them for X, Y, and Z reasons. After all, isn't that a better analogy to what's going on in that room? Nobody was, to my knowledge, about that experiment. I watched a movie about it one time. I think I read an article on it, but I, I, you know, I haven't, it's not been recent. But to my understanding, nobody was actually literally forcing them to push the button. It wasn't like they'd be killed if they didn't push the button. Um, it was more like a scientifically minded individual urging someone who is sitting here listening to that scientific individual who they admire and agreeing, okay, they're, they're, the, they're the person in the lab coat, let's push the button. The point is that whether it's God or somebody else, all of us have authoritarian figures. And while it's still true that in general, a lot of people push that button when they had an authoritative figure, and that's still not okay, in the same way we all have authoritative figures. So this idea, that, and you know, the idea that hey, we're the free thinkers and we don't listen to nobody on that or we don't have to listen to anybody doesn't fly because we all do whether we are forced to at the end of a sword or whether we self-impose it. And of course, if we recall on a thoroughgoing atheist materialism, you don't have free will anyway. It's all been determined. So there's no real praiseworthiness or blameworthiness. There, we can hold people responsible but there is no praiseworthiness or blameworthiness as cosmic skeptic and rationality rules. And perhaps Matt Dillahunty would all agree. So I wanted to make that point about this experiment. Now let's move on because um, here, here's something that I think Paul Logia says. That's a great example. I think of um, if this object, this thing that they call absolute morality or objective morality can't actually be objective in the sense that if humans didn't exist if humans didn't exist would this objective morality that deals with how humans relate to each other could it exist like shannon like is 
like let's say repeat it for me before humans were created before day six yeah because we know day six is when humans were created. <laughs> on day five did morality exist did did objective morality that tells humans how humans relate to humans exist i mean i don't think it exists <laughs> No, but it wouldn't. Like, if no, you remove it, all humans from yeah, existence, just, there's no need for morality. Morality specifically relates to humans. Anything that relates to one species only. Like, if there isn't a coronavirus mora objective morality, if there isn't an objective morality for the for any virus, there wouldn't be. Or for squirrels, yeah. There's no objective squirrel morality. Yeah. I mean, this is again where we demonstrate that squirrels do what's best for squirrels. Yep. Viruses do what's best for viruses. Mm -hmm. uh, humans do what's best for humans. Yeah. That matches what we see in nature. It does not match what we see in nature to say that uh, something outside of us uh, can relate to one species only and yet be independent of that existence of the species. Right. Okay, so there were like two things there, I think. Um, the first thing is sounded like, it doesn't even make sense to say, or does it even make sense to say, that in the absence of any humans yet coming to exist, that there would be this objective morality that is binding on humans. This seems patently false to me. Um, because what he's doing is it's, it seems like is an internal examination of theism, right? If you have God, you know, because he doesn't even believe that objective morality exists, but um, if you have a God and you have a world where there are no humans yet, does it even make sense to say there's an objective morality for humans without humans there for it to be binding upon? Well, could you have a speed limit on a road that no one's yet driven on? If God is aware he's planning to create humans, uh, then of course you could have you could have objective morality, an objective standard, an objective moral code, and um, and all of that sort of thing for the humans that have not yet come to exist. That to me that uh, that's just obviously true. But then he moves on to something else. It kind of morphs into something else, which is, well, look, what seems to make sense to me is squirrels do what's best for squirrels. Um, uh, viruses do what's best for viruses. So humans do what's best for humans. Uh, isn't that how it works? Isn't that what matches reality? Yeah, generally speaking. But understand, there is no, it's a false dichotomy to say that on Christian theism or on whatever theistic framework you want to make it, that it can't be one of the goals generally is to do what's best for humans, right? That's There's no dichotomy there. But secondly, there simply is no problem with if a God exists saying, uh, you know, here I have now this higher order of being, humanity, that is able to think on a level that nothing else in my creation is able to think. And so I'm going to uh, I'm going to expect more out of them. I'm going I'm going to expect them to recognize certain objective moral values and duties that flow from my nature. There just isn't anything about that that's problematic. You know, it it just I don't see the problem there. So maybe one day Paul can explain to me in more detail what he means. Now let's get let's get to this. Uh, Oh, that's David. I don't want to go to David. So that's kind of the end of that whole thing. But there was something I wanted to make a point about here. Uh, they have a later discussion. You can go watch it. And I encourage you to where Shannon is talking about where do these religious people get their morals anyway? Like she's saying, is it just that they think now if I misrepresent you, Shannon, I, I hope you know me well enough to know that is not my intent. Um, if it is, it's just user error on my part or perhaps a lack of clarity on your part, but we'll put it on me. Um, but my understanding of what you, you were saying is, do they just like the prescriptive, do Christians just like the prescriptive brand of morality better? Is that, is, do they just think that's better somehow? And it, where do they, where do these religious people get their morals? The Bible? Because I think she says like, Look, a lot of, you know, you can take lots of different people looking at the Bible and they come up with different understandings of exact, exactly what these moral prescriptions are, right? Um, and, and what I want to say about that is um, the question of whether, we, whether prescriptive morality is better or not is somewhat of a secondary issue. Uh, the question that the reason that Christians, and this goes back to something that's come up three times now, the reason that we Christians feel the way we do about this or think the way we do about it is not because we th we think that if God exists and gave us these prescriptions, then it would all work a whole lot better. We recognize in nature, in humanity, in our 
um, communities and in our anthropology in general, at large, worldwide, we just recognize that there are true moral obligations and duties. And, and so because of that, we, we reason from that that the best explanation for that is a God who exists in whose nature these things are grounded. Now, in terms of the moral discussion in general, it's not really, and I'll grant you, this is where what Dillahunty says he wished he had, which is Christianity instead of just theism. We, you know, Christianity does make more moral pronouncements that you could then take those pronouncements and look at those specifically in detail in a systematic way. Um, and, and you could you could ask questions about those prescriptions and how do we interpret those and, and, and all those sorts of things. But the fact of the matter is these uh, we don't we're not saying that the typical moral case is not and I, this happens all the time is not well where are you getting this morality you know look at the bible and look at all these horrible things that happen in the bible or in her case look at the disagreements between different people trying to understand what the bible says the point is simply that it's only on christian theism or only on theism of some sort that you can even get objective moral values and duties so if we at least agreed on that much we could then start debating uh, whether and what prescri prescriptions there are. And then we would start doing our moral epistemology to understand um, the moral framework in a more detailed sense. And Christians do that and theologians do that all the time. But the, the, point, the point that always comes up with the morality issue is, is that you, the only way you get an objective foundation for this is in the nature of God. That's that's the primary point. So I wanted to make that clear. So in the end, I think what we've got is um, an interesting uh, look at this debate, and we've several different answers or um, uh, topics that we were able to spin off onto. And um, I, listen, uh, Paul Ogia, when I, when I was preparing a response to him, I I, I sent uh, messages to him, said, hey, I want to make sure I understand you rightly on this. I don't want to straw man you. I don't want to get your position wrong. And he was very, very open to that. Uh, Shannon Q, when I made the uh, four types of atheist YouTubers, I, I sent her stuff, sent her video clips and said, hey, am I, am I capturing you in a fair way? So, you know, though we disagree wildly on what I think we would consider are some of the most important issues for human beings to discuss. Um, they, I think that there has been uh, a workable relationship in understanding each other's positions. And in fact, I went on Shannon Q's show once and we talked about that kind of clarity among theists and atheists. So you can check that out. Uh, but listen, I've, uh, I've enjoyed this. I hope you have. And I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio. Everybody wanted this though, and then we started watching it, and then we watched Braxton's video. And I was, Why are you mean to Braxton? <laughs> you have to look up this fellow. <gasps> you know who Braxton is. Stop pretending. If I had.